0: Thanks, Harry. Uh, it's great to be here with you all. It's an honor for me to be able to preach for you this morning. Uh, as Harry said, uh, I am a pastor down in San Jose at Grace South Bay, um, and it's—I uh, think this is my fourth time, third or fourth time—preaching for Risen. So it's great to see some familiar faces again. Um, I, it has been 14 years that I've been married to my wife. Actually, on Tuesday, I appreciate the reminder. I will make sure I go out and get something for her. So. Um, We're going to look this morning at a passage from the gospel according to John. And usually when we look at a passage from the gospels, it's about Jesus doing something or Jesus saying something. But this morning we've got something a little different. The focus is not on Jesus. It's on two other people, which is really helpful because it shows us how Jesus responds to people just like you and me. So let's listen to the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray before we continue. God, we come before you this morning and we hear this passage and we can almost see these events take place. And yet they feel very far from us, distant. So we ask that you would send your spirit into our hearts this morning to make these words alive so that we might hear and see Jesus working life into us. Help us to be transformed by his love. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In 1975, a woman named Barbara dropped off some items at the St. Ives School in Cornwall, which is in southwest England, donated them to the school. One of those items happened to be this small bronze sculpture. And the headmaster thought it was pretty unique, so he put it on his desk and used it as a paperweight for 37 years until 2012, when the Antiques Roadshow came to town. And the librarian at the school who had seen this paperweight for all these years decided to take it to the Antiques Roadshow to see if it was worth anything. She waited in line for hours, and when she got to the front where the expert was, the expert informed her that this Barbara who had donated this item was in fact the famed sculptor Barbara Hepworth. And this tiny little bronze figurine was worth $981,000. They were shocked. The school was so surprised. In fact, they couldn't afford the insurance premium payments on this sculpture. So they had to donate it to a local museum where it stands with the uh, inscription, the most expensive paperweight. Truly knowing what you've been given changes everything. We see this principle on display in our passage for us. John, the gospel writer, is contrasting two people, Judas and Mary. But more than just contrasting their actions, he is contrasting their hearts. What it is that drives their actions. What motivates them. We see on display an attitude of scarcity and an attitude of of abundance, Judas and Mary, and between them is Jesus, not just because he is physically between them in this scene, but also because it is he who has made the difference in their hearts, in their actions. Mary has come to value Jesus, to see him, to know him, and to be changed by him. Judas has not. This change in Mary leads her to do something crazy. I mean, this is out of control at a dinner party. What she does is scandalous. It's shocking. She pours this oil on Jesus' feet, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. This cuts through the conversation. This stops the dinner party for sure. The smell is overpowering. Nard that made up this ointment was used at this time to anoint dead bodies to help conceal the smell of decay. It was very, very potent. This whole party screeches to a halt. You don't anoint a guest at dinner, but Mary didn't care. It was only servants who touched and cleaned the feet of others, but Mary didn't care. You don't use this ointment on someone who is alive. Mary didn't care. You don't squander this valuable of an item wasting this amount of money mary doesn't care because mary has been set free from the rules regulations and expectations of polite society she's free but judas is not he is angry that mary has done this mad that she is not following the rules mary doesn't care She is free to give back to Jesus what her heart leads her to give back to Jesus. This passage shows us that a fearful heart, given the ultimate gift, is set free. Those are my three points this morning. A fearful heart, given the ultimate gift, is set free. We're going to start with a fearful heart, which we see on display in Judas. And I have to confess, the more I looked into this passage, the more I studied it and I learned about it, the more I came to actually understand a little bit about where Judas is coming from. His line of thinking made a little bit of sense to me. And in fact, I began to see my own heart appear in Judas's. When Mary does this outrageous outrageous thing, Judas responds angrily. Verse 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And it's hard for us to hear this without hearing a little bit of bitterness come through in Judas. And it's easy for us to hear that bitterness and write him off. This is not someone we want to hang around, not someone who is thinking rationally. This doesn't make sense. But in fact, think about what Judas has been through. For the last two years, he spent his entire life with Jesus, serving Jesus in a ministry that is focused on caring for the poor, meeting the needs of those who are outcasts, healing those who are sick, right? When we see Jesus working miracles in the gospel, he's accessing his supernatural power in order to care for the broken and the needy and the sick. That's what this ministry was all about. And here comes Mary doing something completely antithetical to the ministry. In Judas's eyes, this was a complete waste. The gospel writers Matthew and Mark also record this event, and they tell us that it wasn't just Judas who was appalled, but there were many witnessing Mary anointing Jesus's feet who were upset with her, but Judas was the only one who spoke out. This action didn't fit within the normal operating procedure of Jesus's ministry. This would be like a local food pantry celebrating five years of service here in the Bay Area, By flying their president to the Maldives for a week. That just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. But John tells us there was another reason that Judas was angry, not just because Mary's actions stand out, but because Judas himself used to fund his own lifestyle based on the money that came in to this ministry. Judas is afraid. Judas is afraid that whatever lifestyle he's been living over the past couple of years, whomever he has supported by stealing money from the money bags of Jesus's ministry is going to fall apart. He senses security, maybe comfort, hope slipping out of his fingers, literally dripping down the feet of Jesus. Mary's actions have stolen his lifestyle, and he is afraid. He sees that this is an opportunity, might not get another one, and I have to take this now if I get a chance. Fear is running his heart. And the truth is, fear runs many of our decisions as well. The way that we act, the way we respond, the way we speak. I saw this come out in a very ugly way for myself just a couple weeks ago. We took our two girls to the San Jose Earthquake soccer game. Their soccer teams that they play on were there together. We sat down in our seats and I went down under the bleachers to get uh, something to drink for both of my girls. And I'm standing in line, getting water, and my wife texts me, Margaret, who is six, wants a soft pretzel. Now, before we continue, you need to know that I love soft pretzels. And so as I'm standing in line, I see the pretzels rotating on that beautiful display, and I decide right then and there, it's gonna be two soft pretzels, one for Margaret and one for me. But as I'm walking back up the steps with two water bottles and two pretzels, one water for Michaela, one water for Margaret, a pretzel for Margaret, and a pretzel for me, I realize I've made a mistake because my older daughter's gonna want this pretzel, and I don't wanna give her this pretzel. So I get to our row, I hand the water bottles out, I give Margaret her pretzel, and then I push past my older daughter and push past my wife and sit down and take a big bite of the pretzel. And no sooner did the salt hit my tongue, than my oldest daughter leans over and she goes, Daddy, can I have that pretzel? And the fear in my heart said, this is the only pretzel you're going to get. And if you give her this whole pretzel, you're not going to be able to enjoy any more of it. So being the selfish, fear-driven person I am, I ripped half of it off and handed my daughter half a pretzel. As silly as that is, that's the same narrative that drives so much of what we do. This is all the goodness that I'm going to get. This is all the comfort, all the security that I'm going to get. And if I don't hold on to it tightly, it's going to be taken away. And as you As I say that out loud, it sounds exactly like the original lie that was told in the garden to Adam and Eve. The lie being God's holding back. What you've got, yeah, it's okay. There's something better out there, something more out there, but God's not going to give it to you. You have to go and take it for yourself. And we are still believing that same lie of fear today. Whether it's security or comfort Or happiness or value or worth all of it is running low all of it is scarce you have to manage it you have to protect the amount you have and if you want more you have to go out and get it because god's not good enough to give you what you want that is the lie of fear that drives a lot of our decisions and it works out like this time is scarce we only have so much And so we don't commit to things right away in case something better comes along, right? Relational capital, emotional energy, it is scarce. And so when someone says they want to meet with us, we do this measuring trick in our mind. How invested do I actually want to get? How much time do I want to spend with this person? How deep do I want to go? How involved do I actually want to get? We recognize that serving other people is important, but... Uh, Time is scarce. Finances aren't. And so I'm not going to actually go help somebody, but I feel good writing a check and handing it off. Or maybe for you, it's the opposite. Finances are scarce, but time is plentiful. So I'm not actually going to give any of my resources away, but I don't mind going and working. That's good enough for me. Think about your life. Where are you living with a closed fist? And by that, I mean, where are you afraid that you're going to miss out on something better? Believing the lie that God hasn't or won't give you what you want. Somehow, he's holding back. And if you want to keep what you've got, or you want something better, you have to go get it. Where are you living with a closed fist? That lie leads us to miss something it leads Judas to miss the same thing. Or maybe more appropriately, the same person. He's sitting right in front of him. My second point, the ultimate gift. A fearful heart given the ultimate gift. Now this passage sits in a unique place in the Gospel of John. John's tone shifts right here. In the previous passage, the leaders of the people of Israel the Sanhedrin, have agreed that the only way to deal with this Jesus character is to kill him off. And they've convinced themselves that this is actually a really good idea. And the story shifts at that point. From here on out, Jesus's purpose has changed. Verse 1, there is a therefore in the passage. It shows us that Jesus has changed. He has shifted. John 11, John spends the first 11 chapters talking about how Jesus brings the kingdom of God to bear in people's lives. Life abundant interrupts their lives where they're at, and he is showing them that he has brought the kingdom of of God, excuse me, into their midst. Verse 1, everything changes. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Jesus' face, his momentum, his energy is now set toward Jerusalem at the Passover. And if you don't remember, the Passover is the celebratory feast that sits at the center of the Jewish calendar year. This is the time where they remember how God saved them from slavery in Egypt by killing off the firstborn of Egypt, but passing over the houses of his people Israel. They celebrate every year. And Jesus is now heading this year to this feast in Jerusalem. For Jesus, his time has come. His time has come to go and die, and he knows it. He knows that everything is different, and the time has come for him to focus on going to Jerusalem to die. We know this because of what he says in verse 7. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is not saying let her keep the oil, obviously that's been poured out, but the experience of worshiping Jesus face to face because he knows the end is near. And this is really significant for us because Jesus's death and resurrection is the greatest, most ultimate gift that any of us could ever receive. See, it's easy for us to forget that Jesus wasn't just hated by the people and killed and God goes, Oh, right, I guess I can use that now. I can use Jesus' death to save everybody. But the death and resurrection of Jesus was the plan from the beginning. The only way that your sin and my sin and the death that they deserve could be taken care of is if God himself died. And Jesus gives his life freely to us. In John 10, he says, I'm going to lay down my life of my own accord. No one is going to take it from me. It was his choice. It was for you. And it is the most ultimate gift. And all you have to do is receive it. To receive the death and resurrection of Jesus as a gift for you. And it's easy for us to hear that and to think of that as receiving information. Yes, I've learned this. This is really helpful. This is really good. And in the end, we think of Jesus' death and resurrection as a gift for us, as bringing us eternal security. That's right. Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. And that means when you and I die, if we're in him, we don't go to hell. But if that's all it is, it remains just information. And it does very little to us in life. It's like me at five years old receiving A U.S. savings bond from my grandfather for Christmas. Okay, that's helpful. Great information. It's going to be worth something someday, but I wanted a bunch of Nerf guns. (laughs) Jesus' death and resurrection is eternal security for us, but it is also so much more. It's not just information, it's transformation, Mary didn't interrupt this dinner party and do this crazy thing because she knew one day she wasn't going to go to hell, she was going to go to heaven. She did this because Jesus changed her, changed her life. And an evidence of his change is sitting at the table with her. Lazarus, her brother, he is mentioned twice in this passage. And the fact that he is the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead is mentioned twice twice in this passage. In fact, most scholars think that this feast was a thank you dinner given by Mary and her sister Martha for Jesus bringing their brother back from the dead. That's a huge gift, to be sitting with your brother who had died and Jesus brought him back from the dead. That's a life-changing gift. But more than that, you might not remember when Jesus shows up to Bethany After Lazarus has died, Martha comes out to meet him upset, and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I understand there's all this theology stuff and God, and you're doing all this stuff, so I'm sure you're going to figure it out. She reasons her way into not being upset. Mary can't do that. She comes to Jesus broken, sobbing, crying, can barely get through her tears, and Jesus does not scold her. He does not chastise her, but he weeps with her. He dignifies her. His actions communicate to her her worth. She is valuable just as she is. Her brokenness is not shameful. Her tears are not condemned. And this is how Jesus transforms you and I. The the person that you are right now, Jesus sees and Jesus knows And Jesus is with you. Now, Stephen, you might be thinking, Jesus has never done any of that stuff for me. Jesus never returned family members who were sick and dying to me, even though I have asked and I have begged and I have pleaded. And I know, and he knows. And what we see from Jesus is that he does not condemn you for your disappointment, for your tears, for your sorrow. Jesus welcomes everyone just as you are. Whatever emotion, whatever thought, whatever joy, whatever success, whatever failure you are experiencing right now is met and dignified and seen and cared for by Jesus. He sees you, and he says, you, the you that you are right now, You are valuable to me. I want to be with you. You are worth it. So worth it, I'm willing to die for you. That is the ultimate gift for you and I now and for all eternity. And if that's true... If Jesus really meets us right where we are and loves us in the midst of whatever we're going through, it should change us. But how? How does the ultimate gift change us? How did it change Mary? A fearful heart given the ultimate gift is set free. My final point, set free. These experience experiences that Mary has had with Jesus, receiving him as the gift that he is. It has opened her heart and her hands. If we could classify Judas's actions as the outworking of scarcity, then Mary's actions are the outworking of abundance. In Jesus, she has abundant life, so she can give abundantly. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his hair or her his feet with her hair The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This was costly in the worldly sense. Three hundred denarii, as Judas points out, which was the equivalent of about a year's salary. Imagine that for a second. Take a year of your salary, your household income, and just pour it out. That's ridiculous. Why would she have this much nard, this much ointment. Well, most people think that this was used in one of two ways. Martha and Mary and Lazarus, a family group, all lived together, and they probably used this as a rainy day fund. This was an opportunity for them to trust that if something bad happened, they could sell this and be taken care of, all three of them. It was like a family trust almost. Or this was to be used for the event of one of their burials. They would use some of the ointment to cover the dead body. They would sell the rest to pay for the funeral expenses. She is literally pouring out her and her sister and her brother's livelihood. She is giving it away. But we have to remember, coming from Mary's heart, this isn't giving it away. This is giving it back. She realizes that Jesus has given her everything. More than she could have ever asked for. She has abundant life now, and so she can give whatever she wants back. Her devotion to Jesus is miraculous. Her open handedness, her her willingness to give this beautiful gift to Jesus, she embarrasses herself in front of everyone. She embarrasses her family, her brother and her sister as well, being the hosts of the party. By wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, she brings down the whole mood of the party. It was a celebratory feast. It was to be happy, put on for Jesus. But unwrapping her hair and letting it fall in that culture was a symbol of the deepest sorrow, the deepest mourning, because she knew Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. He is going to die. She does all of this embarrassment, ruining the party, getting rid of all of this expensive stuff because she knew in Jesus she had way more than any of these things could provide her. Now, please hear me when I say that what she's doing is important, but why she is doing it is more important because you might be having a little bit of a panic right now. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to give away a year's worth of my salary I'm supposed to make a public spectacle of myself for Jesus? I have to be embarrassed in order to worship Him? I have to be a party pooper, no fun? I have to sell off my house and give up my livelihood? No. But why not? Why is that thing the thing that you're holding on to so tightly? Why is it that one of those things that I mentioned or something else is so close to your heart that the thought of giving it up or entering into that experience was so fearful. Okay, you might say, I'm starting to see what you're saying, but Jesus isn't here right now. I can't spend time with him. I would if I could. I, I would do something to his feet, whatever. I could do all of that, but I can't because he's not here, which is true. But we need to remember what Jesus says throughout his ministry, Especially Matthew 25, where Jesus paints a picture of the final judgment, where He, the Great Shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are welcomed in by the King. And the separating line, according to Jesus, is this: Have you fed the hungry? Have you clothed the naked? Have you tended the sick? Have you welcomed the stranger? For whenever you do the least, uh, whenever you do this for the least of these my brothers, you do it to me. See, Mary's open-handedness with Jesus is mirrored in our open-handedness with each other, and not just with each other here in this room, but with each other as humans. Jesus says, you won't always have me around, but you do have the least of these, my brothers. The question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is not, am I doing enough Am I giving enough? But the question I want you to consider is this. Am I really free? Is my heart really free? Am I living an abundant life in Jesus? Or am I afraid that if I give this, I let go of this, that God will not give enough to me? Afraid that there won't be enough. That God is too stingy. That he is not the God of good gifts, and so I have to grasp tightly. That's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. As Harry mentioned, I planted a church outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and when my wife and I were first starting, we were raising money from a lot of our friends, family friends, people that we knew through work and the different places that we had done ministry before. And in one particular case, we were back in Charlotte, where my wife Nicole is from, and we were having dinner with some people who had been supporting us. They were friends of her parents. I think I had met them once at an engagement party like six years prior. Uh, Didn't know them very well, but they had been supporting us for a long time. They weren't our largest monthly givers, but they were faithful. And so we went over to their house to have dinner to thank them for their support. And at some point in the course of the evening, uh, the, the husband asked, how, how are things going? How are finances? What, what is the church looking like? And I used it as an opportunity to thank him. I said, you know, I really appreciate your faithfulness to us. Like your, your, the support that you bring us as well as our other supporters have gotten us to the place where we're just $1,000 a month short, which means I don't have to spend a lot of time fundraising. I can spend a lot more time caring for the people in Tennessee counseling, proclaiming the gospel, getting uh, connected with all of these other people. I'm so thankful that you have helped free me up to do that. Dinner continued. He said nothing more. It just, we had dessert. We played a few games. He started clearing the table, walked into the kitchen, and he came back with a check for $12,000. And he handed it to me and he said, now you're really free. And I will never forget how I felt. I mean, first of all, it was a check for $12,000. That was just amazing. But second of all, to see how freely he just gave this money to me, someone he barely knew. I've never forgotten that. I think about that dinner often when I feel convicted over how stingy and frugal I can be because I think about how generous and open-handed he was. There was something about his attitude toward us, his willingness and freedom to give to us convinces me that he was living life abundant. Our society, your own heart will tell you there's not enough. There's not enough money, security, comfort, influence. You have to hold on tightly what you have now. And if you want anything more, you are the one that has to go and get it. But the message of the gospel this morning is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is everything, and it has been given to you freely. And when you receive Jesus, the ultimate gift, he transforms your heart from one of fear to one of freedom. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you this morning and we confess that hearing these words of transformation, of new life, are easy for us. And yet, when we step out these doors this afternoon, when we go back to work, go back to school, go back to driving our kids' places tomorrow morning, we get right back into the cycle of fear. Help us, oh God, remember that because we have Jesus we have everything. He sees us just as we are. He welcomes us to himself. He loves us, and he changes us. Help us, God, to worship you. We pray this in his mighty and powerful name. Amen.